Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that we've got a new way of solving problems. The International Conference of Machine Learning in Stockholm just had an announcement of a new kind of algorithm that winnows out possibilities instead of one at a time, basically 10 at a time. This was something out of Harvard University, and they're doing problem solving 10 times faster than standard things for really complex problems. And one of the interesting problems they looked at was how do you devise an optimal route for cabs in New York City? And they found that they could do it six times faster than existing technology. And the reason this is a cool fact of the day is that this type of algorithm could speed up data processing for everything from drug discovery to social media analytics to analyzing your genetic data. And it's one little data point in something big and transformative that's happening. And it's that the amount of technology we have is creating exponential growth in our knowledge about what it means to be a human, what it means to be a high-performance human, and even how organizations work and how they function and how we work as teams with other people. I believe after writing Headstrong about mitochondria that we're fundamentally wired at a subcellular level to be kind to each other, to, to specialize and to cooperate. And this is the same thing bacteria do when they make yogurt. It's not just one bacteria, it's a network of bacteria doing different things. The same thing happens in kombucha or in a biofilm, or when you even get an infection. It's not like they're bacteria all doing the same thing. They actually line up and protect each other. We're wired to do the same thing to each other as a species, and computer algorithms like this let us see our behavior in new ways, which is incredibly cool and exciting to me. So look forward to another the next five years of being full of just breakthroughs in knowledge about what it means to be us. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. 
I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. Today's guest on the show is someone who looks at organizations and leadership and doesn't necessarily use computer algorithms to do it, but has spent 15 years helping companies connect with their employees and with their consumers in the ad agency business. And you could say, why the heck am I putting someone like that on the Bulletproof Radio Show? And the reason is that he started his own research and learning organization at the height of the last recession because he just felt something was missing and has spent almost 10 years looking at what the world's best companies do differently and is started sharing that knowledge. So whether you're an entrepreneur or you just work at a company, I think what you're going to find in this interview is that there's something really important about having a mission and knowing why you do what you do and why your company does what it does and how that can impact your performance as a human being. Today's guest is Ryan Estes. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Now, you've worked with some pretty impressive clients, uh, the National Basketball Association, Mayo Clinic, Ernst & Young, AT&T, uh, all these different big companies, and you're actually a faculty member uh, for the Institute of Management Studies. And you've spent a lot of time looking at how companies do what they do. And I got to ask you first and foremost, why do you care? Like, why why did you do that versus all the other things you could have done? Yeah, I, I think um, I got interested in it, in it during my time at the ad agency. And we worked with such a broad and diverse client roster. And uh, we, we were working with them. And I, I became fascinated um, by and about meaningful work. It's such a big part of our lives. And I think it has such an impact on our identity and who we are as people that, you know, it, it became an interest of mine and a passion of mine. And I got to do it with the ad agency. And now I'm doing it, um, I think, in a more meaningful and impactful way on a daily basis. So that's where it came from. And, and both my parents were teachers. So maybe I had a little bit of that sharing knowledge kind of implanted in me early in my life. So you just got interested early on and, and you, you stuck with it. You also did something... Uh, similar to what I did. Uh, you had a, a, a high paying executive job and you decided to, I don't want to say at the height of your career, but as you're doing really well in your career, say, ah, screw that noise. I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. Uh, why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I think uh, something was missing in, in me and, you know, my quest kind of for my own, my own meaningful work. And, you know, it was an interesting time. Um, it was probably the worst time to do it, but um, because I did it at the height of the Great Recession. But I always say the Great Recession turned out to be my greatest gift um, because there were some real challenges during uh, at the ad agency during that time, like there were for a lot of companies. And um, it really paused. It caused me to kind of hit the pause button and look inside. And I was in my late thirties. I was single, and I thought, Wow, if I'm if I'm ever going to take a shot now's the time. And uh, I, I didn't want to run a mediocre company sideways for the sweet spot of my career. I wanted to see if I could launch out of my own and do something significant, and meaningful or something that that mattered to me. Uh, and it was it wasn't easy getting that off the ground, but it turned out to be the best professional decision that I've ever made. 
There are a lot of people listening to Bulletproof Radio now, and I know this from social media and just from talking to people when I'm traveling and speaking and whatnot, um, who are in that same mindset. A lot of the Bulletproof coaches at the Bulletproof Training Institute are saying, should I go start my own company now? Um, now that you've done it, would you recommend it to other people? Uh, everybody is different. Um, and and what, I, what I would suggest to other people, that that's something that's burning inside you, I think um, I think it's better to to try and know than to live with the regret of never having tried at all. Um, and what I'd recommend to anybody is if you have an idea or a vision or something that really is calling to you, if there's a way to test that, to try it, to take a small step forward, to you know incubate a side hustle and iterate the idea forward in some small way, you know while you ha- still have some semblance of security. Um, that's not a bad way to test the idea and get a little feedback before you, you go all in like I did. My departure was very abrupt. I don't know that I'd recommend what I did to anybody else. Um, but certainly my journey has been rewarding, not for, and and not really for what I've been able to achieve, but I think part of it is who I've been able to become, um, you know, over the last decade. I, I think that's part of why it's been so meaningful. When you go to speak at a at a conference, uh, and you you do this quite often, several times per week, uh, you're talking to large audiences, telling them how they can perform better. What's the first thing that you tell them to pay attention to? Yeah, I think a, a lot of it a lot of it comes down to um, you know the, their their relationships. Um, I think that's a big big part of it. Um, you know, and, and the, their mindset towards change, I would say every organization that we deal with is, is trying to, you know, achieve some level of breakthrough. Um, they're focused on innovation, competitions coming from everywhere. You know, a lot of people feel very overwhelmed and exhausted. So we talk a lot about relationships, collaboration. I talk a little bit about self-care when it comes to leadership and then our attitude towards change. And I think some, those are some of the big themes that, large organizations are navigating with and dealing with, and that's some of the focus of our work. I have my, uh, my crazy theories, uh, which I think are true, uh, about where a lot of our unconscious behaviors come from, that, that they're algorithms inside our bodies. And the first and most important algorithm that a single cell bacteria will, will do is run away from, kill, or hide from scary things. And, and so we do that with all of our focus, or at least most of our focus, all the time. And we do that simply because if something eats you right now, it's sort of game over. You don't get to try harder later. So uh, I, I say, well, okay, we have that going on in quadrillions of locations in our body, millions of times a second in each location. So this is a fundamental human condition. We have this, we have this personal and organizational thing that resists change. And as organizations grow, they have something that I describe as an immune system where it will push out new ideas. And this is why innovation sucks at older, bigger companies almost always. And if you want to create innovation, you create a little skunk works. You don't tell anyone about it and you give them a budget and you shield them. Why is it that, well, I think I already have the why given that people do resist change individually and in groups, 
How do we make people more comfortable on a personal level with accepting change? Yeah, a big part of it is how we manage around mistakes and failure. I mean, if you're going to be innovative, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to get every, everything right the first time. And that's very counterintuitive to large publicly traded companies. I mean, I think success and legacy success has a tendency to breed complacency. And new ideas aren't accepted, and they're certainly you know, not embraced, especially outside of that environment. And I think we have to talk about it, create a w- awareness around it. And I think particularly from a leadership perspective, get really conscious uh, and intentional around how we coach and manage around mistakes. You know, we do research around this stuff. I mean, over 50% of employees in North America don't believe their company supports innovation um, because mistakes aren't treated as learning opportunities. They're treated punitively. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a real leadership charge to, you know, conduct experiments, take risks and understand that, you know, success in the future is going to be more iterative. It's just a different way of thinking and working. It's funny. Uh, earlier in my career, I was a co-founder of a part of a company that held Google's first servers. This was the only stock ever to split three times in one year on the NASDAQ. It was called Exodus Communications. And this little business unit, I was one of three founders of it. Um, the organization tried to shut us down and we blocked that, but we ended up growing to a hundred million dollars a quarter in revenue. After, wow. <laughs> after, after they tried to kill it. Wow. And they tried to kill it for all these dumb little reasons. It wasn't a strategic decision. It's one of these emergent annoyances. And in this case, we had our own set of financials and we're able to say, well, we look like we're making money. Maybe you could let us live and we'll just be more supportive. And we played the game and sort of ran the gauntlet. But for every one of those success stories, there are probably hundreds or thousands of really good ideas that get kicked out of companies and then get done as startups that go on to disrupt their companies. Well, it's so true. And, and you know, you have, I mean, my business, you know, my own business today was very much that way. I mean, if I was given the runway, I would have incubated this idea inside of the agency and grown it into some type of a learning organization. And I think we would have been able to grow it and expand it. We had relationships with large organizations all over the country, but it was, it just wasn't what we were doing. It wasn't the traditional way we approach business. And, you know, I, I think there are examples of large progressive organizations. I think AT&T would be one, Red Hat would be another, where they, they really kind of focus on being more of a meritocracy, where they allow good ideas inside the organization to bubble up, get voted on, analyze, gain support, resourcing. And then actually, if, if there's merit, they move forward into a business. And, you know, I, I've seen examples of that, but I, I would say to your point, it's right for, you know, every story like yours, there there's thousands of flares that go up and die quietly on the vine because they don't get the support they need. Now, most people listening to Bulletproof Radio aren't running companies, although there's a good number of entrepreneurs and, and senior execs who, who do. But all of us, at least most of us, work for a company. And it's my experience that if I work for a company that supports innovation and embraces failure without punishing you for it, uh, that I'm generally happier. I look at the times in my career where you could say, well, here's the plan. We bought off on the plan and it didn't work. And so we'll do something else, but it's not that you're a personal failure, you're going to get fired because the plan didn't work. Uh, unless it really was your fault and you did something you shouldn't have done kind of thing, in which case, well, you get what you, get what you earn in that case. But, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about, you know, you did what you said you were going to do and the outcome was different than what everyone planned. Uh, how do people go about finding a job? At, like, how do you spot a company like that? 
Yeah, I think I think part of it is don't necessarily focus just on finding the job. Focus on finding the manager. So, so much of this comes down to who you're working for and those kinds of relationships. And I really give that counsel to young people early in their career, emerging in their career. And then I think, uh, you know, for anybody that's looking for a job, and a, a lot of people are because they're not satisfied where they are, you know, I, I think you have to evaluate those things and interview both the management and the employer as, as much as they're interviewing you. So, you know, th- those are two suggestions that I'd have for anybody that's thinking about a change. And a lot of people are, and you're right. The vast majority of people aren't happy at work. And it's, and it's unfortunate because we spend a significant number of time there, and that has consequences on the rest of our life. There's a Stanford professor, a researcher who just wrote a book called Dying for a Paycheck, and he wrote about the catastrophic health consequences of feeling so unfulfilled and disengaged in our work. And you know, that's a reality today. It's something that I've certainly done earlier in my career. You do work that you don't think is particularly important or exciting, and you work for someone who doesn't necessarily have your your best interests at at heart. And you fast forward 20, 25 years, and I'm working every day at Bulletproof to have a culture where our, our managers and our leadership actually is kind and cares for and helpful and supportive of the people who report to them. Because it, it's just so easy to default into the the standard, you know, madmen top down hierarchy where you, know, you yell at people who don't do what you want and you send uh, nasty emails late at night, which was a habit that I had earlier in my career for sure. Uh, and what it does though is it it kind of eats out the soul of a company if you allow that to happen. And your advice there is well, look at the person you'd be working for. And yeah. so you interview your boss during an interview, your potential boss, but. How do you know that your boss isn't a good boss working for a company full of, you know, abusive managers? Well, you, you, you don't necessarily. So you have to you have to do additional due diligence. There's more ways to do that now. You go on a site like Glassdoor.com. You know, you see if you have any second or third connections on LinkedIn where you can get feedback. You know, you you, you ask questions. I mean, it's like it's like doing research, homework, and due diligence. There's more resources and channels and ways to do that. Than, than we've ever had before. So I, I would say, you know, con- consider it a research project. And, you know, you want to land in a place like Bulletproof that has a leader that's saying those kinds of things, that has core values that you can identify with. And, you know, come, come prepared when you're in an interview with thoughtful questions about how they manage failure. And, you know, you ask those things. And, and I think that's, there's, there's a way to vet some of that out. So, and look there, and there are, there are great examples of companies that are doing this like you. I mean, companies I work with, a company like Mayo Clinic, that's about purpose, values, and culture, a company like Edward Jones that cares about their people and puts people first. And in 2008, during the financial crisis, where they were certainly not going to make their numbers, they did not lay a single person off. And you, you hear these stories and these examples and, you, you know, um, they're out there. And, and so um, you just have to be thoughtful, I think, in your quest to find a place like that. And I want to know how Glassdoor deals with failure because they mixed the Bulletproof account with some Bulletproof consulting firm. Uh, so now we have some... You have bad reviews that aren't yours? Yeah, exactly. I love that. Hey, hey, Glassdoor, if you're listening, maybe you could fix that. Like we've been calling them forever saying, uh, could we only get the reviews that are actually ours? Anyway, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox there. But to your point, Checking out the the social cred of the company is important. Are there specific questions that people might want to ask a manager to help determine whether they're 
I think so. I mean, I think, yeah, I think you have to ask questions you care about. I think you have to ask questions you care about. So if things like autonomy and flexibility are important to you, ask questions about that. I I would be asking questions about innovation and how mistakes are treated and what the, you know, I would ask about challenges and opportunities and upward mobility. You know, it's in the research we do. I mean, there, there are, we look at these drivers of engagement, what make people, what makes people happy in, in their work and, you know, confidence in management, confidence in the future of the organization and being invested in having an opportunity to grow and develop. So you can build effective open-ended questions about all those things and things that are personal drivers for you in your work. And I, and I think gain some pretty good insight into what the experience is going to be like. Um, and you want, and that's what you need to do. You need to walk out of there with a realistic job preview of what the experience is going to be like on a day-to-day basis. One of the reasons I invited you onto the show is that you talk a lot about connecting to your why and companies have a why, but people also have a why. What's your advice uh, for individuals to help them find their why? And how do you define that? Yeah. You know, there was a, there was a wonderful exercise that, uh, a coach, a business coach put me through when I was on the cusp of my transition. And, and she asked me to think about my life five years into the future and pick a random day, a Wednesday, five years from now, and open my eyes and wake up and just kind of make some notes about the day, what I did, what I was experiencing, who was around me, how I was working. It was a vision for my life into the future. And, and what I realized, and, and, and of course, you know, I first passed at this, I got it all wrong. I had, you know, these goals and what my business was going to do and how much money I was going to make. She said, no, 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 just wake up and, and open your eyes and have, have a great day in your life. And what I realized was, you know, a lot of the choices I was making in the short term weren't moving me to align with the person I wanted to be, the place I wanted to be five years into the future. And that I was going to have to confront, you know, my reality and make some tough decisions in the short term and and accept some challenges to kind of course correct and move down the path of my why. And and I think, you know, early in your career, you know, finding your why, what your passion is, what motivates you, you experiment, you try things. And ultimately, hopefully through a bit, a bit of trial and error, you get really good at something that you enjoy and that you're passionate about. Um, but I think, you know, I'm certainly living proof you're living proof. And I would tell you my mom, who's 80 years old, is living proof that it's never too late to course correct. And if you're off track, to consider making a change and moving forward in a diff- different direction. You know, we change, life changes, opportunities come and go. And, and, you know, that's okay, too. It's never too late. Have you read Clayton Christensen's new book, How Will You Measure Your Life? This is the guy who invented the term disruptive innovation, uh, or sorry, uh, disruptive technology. And he's been kind of a guiding light in my, my career, even Bulletproof. I'm disrupting big food right now. Like, hey, guys, uh, yeah. fat is more important than sugar, <laughs> which is why right. we want to be eating that, not sugary crap. Um, but that's disruptive in, in all of tech. But his new book has nothing to do with that. It has to do with exactly what you just said. Is that something you've come across? I have not read his book okay. yet. No, but I will. I, I will. I will put that on my list. It's worth it. And, and you're yeah. telling a story. The consultant who, who helped you think through this sounds a lot like one of my business school professors, Stu Friedman, who's been on the show. And I was getting my MBA at Wharton. I was about 30. And he had us do exactly the same exercise, but he had us go 20 years in the future and had us even write letters to ourselves that he would send us, uh, I think, one year or five years after the class. 
and envision not how much money we had, but what did our day look like? Like, like what was bringing us joy? And that included family. You know, did we have kids? Uh, what our relationship like? Where did we live? Uh, what did we do for work? What brought us happiness? And man, that's some scary stuff because you realize you have no idea. And then once you realize you have an idea and you realize where you are in, in the short-term decisions, you realize you're totally doing it wrong. Uh, but without the vision of the future, uh, I certainly wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't have done that work. And so you had someone do that for you. So I had someone do it for me. But most people listening probably haven't done that. It's a it's a powerful tool. And, and we did go a few layers deeper. You know, one of the things we also did and, and I think this is very helpful when you're doing a visioning exercise uh, like that is when you kind of land on this would be a great vision for my life. And it's okay if, if a vision changes, but you have to have a starting place that you're moving toward is also kind of identifying what are the consequences if you don't make the changes that you need to make today. And the consequences are, you you know, you may miss a window or you may end up you know, not having the, the partner, or the kids, or you may end up divorced or whatever the consequences are, but also kind of accepting some of the reality of, hey, you know, we're all moving forward here. Um, and time is a finite resource. I think it is our most precious finite resource. Um, it's non-renewable. And, you know, the decisions we make each day eventually cumulatively begin to add up and, and you know, shape our lives and our destiny. So it was... um. That was a powerful exercise for me. And putting those words on paper and confronting it really was the catalyst for me to make some major life changes. I got to ask you a question about yeah. that. I used to think that time was my most precious resource, uh, but now I think energy is my most precious resource. Because if I have lots of time and I'm tired and cranky, the time is of almost no value. Like my ability to show up all the way in the time that I have is more precious than the time itself. Does that resonate with you or not? It, 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 it resonates with me in, a, in an absolutely significant way. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I kind of look at the trifecta for me, you know, it, it, a lot of this comes down to meaningful relationships, meaningful work and wellness, mind, body, wellness. And, you know, I've, I've got to be healthy and be able to. And the way I describe it is I want to show up consistently as the best version of myself. So, yeah, I, I, I certainly do think, um, you know, that quality time may be a better way to there you go. describe there you go. that. Yeah. What do you do? So, so you're a CEO, uh, you travel all the time, and both of those are shown to shorten your lifespan. <laughs> and, and so how do you manage your own biology? And, and not only that, showing up on stage for people who haven't done much public speaking, it takes... And an enormous amount of, of energy and focus to be in front of a thousand people and actually bring it all the way, way more than it takes to show up in a, in a conference room and do it. And I, I don't know that I can tell you why, but it's, it's a big thing that you do. Um, Thank you. How do you manage your energy when you're on airplanes and all that stuff every day? Yeah. So energy is a word that we use a lot. And it's actually a word that I think is associated with why I get hired. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm with the National Basketball Association today, kicking off their annual revenue meeting. And the words they use, we want your energy. And so managing, you know, it's energy is an asset of mine. And so I have to have some discipline around how I manage it. 
you know, and it's, and it's some of the simple stuff. It's a lot of the stuff that you talk about, right? It's, it's being, it's being rested, it's self-care, it's maintaining, maintaining meaningful relationships. And then it's what goes in my body, you know, staying hydrated, you know, managing my diet. Um, I haven't missed a week of five workouts in coming up on three and a half years. So, you know, no matter what, I am carving in an hour to exercise five, five days a week minimum. Um, and that's not, that gets put in my calendar, and that's as important as any meeting with the CEO that I have. And, and I mix it up. So um, I, I have to feel good. I have to stay healthy. My, my job and the revenue in my business is dependent on it. So it's a priority. All right, so you prioritize it, but what do you actually do? Like, how do you wake up at five in the morning, uh, two time zones away from where you'd like to be or where your body wants you to be, and show up at full energy? Because that's something most people haven't mastered. All right. Well, I have routines and rituals, so I have a pretty pretty disciplined morning routine of waking up, drinking water. Uh, it includes some meditation. It includes some journaling, and part of that journaling routine is a gratitude practice. And then, depending upon my schedule, it would include perhaps some light stretching or movement, or that could transition into a full blown workout. Um, depending on if I'm, you know, this morning I had to be down early for a sound check and a speech, so you know the workout's going to come at the end of the day. So I have some flexibility around it. But some of those consistent pra- and then and then it usually includes bulletproof coffee. <laughs> so uh and I bring it with me when I travel, so which we talked about offline, but you know that that's that's a practice that you know it makes me feel good and and I experiment. Um I know something you've talked about and I I I read about it um you know, using cold therapy, taking cold, immersing myself in cold water or cold showers, or if I pick up an idea from somebody else about tweaking my morning routine, I'll do that. Um, when I'm on the road, I also love to opt in, drop in at workout classes. So if it's a yoga studio, a cycling class, a bar class, a boot camp, to get around other people and create some human connection. But I'm, you know, I, I do those things, and I think that puts me in a spot where I'm ready to show up and contribute. The other thing is I love what I do. I mean, the, I, the idea that, you know, I'm, I'm with a company like the National Basketball Association, 300 executives are interested in what I have to say, and they value that. Um, that's their hour, not mine. And I owe it to them to show up as the best version of pro- myself prepared for impact. So, um, you know, I, I take it seriously. Um, I consider myself a pro, and that's how I prepare. How often do you do yoga? Uh, once a week minimum. So I mix up my, I mix up my workouts. When I'm home, I do yoga three mornings a week. I have a a teacher come in, but I travel (laughs) uh, probably around 150 days of the year. So I don't know what that works out to, but I'd say I'm at least once a week as well. Uh, What do you get out of yoga? You don't get out of some other form of exercise. Yeah, I think, I think yoga is as good for the mind as it is for the body. So certainly for me, some flexibility and I, you know, I spend, you know, so much time on planes and airports that, you know, the lower back and the body, the stretching and holding the poses is great. But there's certainly something internally that's calming and centered. Um, and, and you know, for me, I think that's a tremendous benefit. Um, I, sh- I should do it more than once a week. Uh, I've got a studio that I love at home. But, you know, like, like you, I'm on the road um, more than 150 dates a year. So it's... Um, that's where it gets challenging, but I will. I'll drop it on studios when I'm traveling too. I think um, it's a it's a good practice, and if when I'm doing it consistently well, I feel better. Uh, yeah, the same here. I I would like to do it more when I travel, but I haven't mastered that art yet. Uh, give me time. 
Now, you spend a lot of time teaching companies about leadership, which means teaching leaders about leadership. And it's one of the things that everyone benefits from understanding. And the reason is that some of us will evolve over time to become leaders, but almost everyone is a leader in some aspect of their life. You may be leader of your household. You may be leader in a group of friends. Uh, and it may be a, a leadership of three people or 300 people. Uh, but the idea to recognize your own potential for that and also to see a good leader in action versus a bad leader is a skill that everyone benefits from. How do you define leadership in your practice and in the way you teach companies? Yeah, um, it, 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 leadership leadership is earning followership, and it's and it's really that simple. And I would agree with you. It's not about title or tenure. Um, you know, it's about having the ability to inspire other people to want to change, become more of who they are. When we talk about leadership, I always say that you know it's it's not a job; it's a responsibility, and it's not about us. It's about humility, sacrifice, service, and helping other people become the best they're capable of being. I think parenting is leadership. I think friendship can be leadership. I think there's all kinds of leadership opportunities in our community. And I think everybody at some point through the journey of life is going to step into the opportunity to, to lead and to have impact. Um, and, and so I always encourage leaders to consider two questions at the end of the day. And the first one I like to consider is, who did I impact today? And then the second one, uh, and because so much of leadership is about impact and so much of what fulfills us is about impact. And then the second one is how how will I be remembered by the people I work with today? And I know that cumulatively over time, the answer to that second question will begin to define and shape my legacy as a leader and as a man. And so um, I think about it in those terms and that informs how I show up to serve each and every day as well. I may be an odd duck here, but I remember early in my career, I was probably 27 and I went to work for this new uh, sales executive and, and sales executives, the, the people you mostly focus on, they're a different kind of breed, uh, leading a group of people to go out and, you know, and sell things, even really good things that help people. It's just a different mindset than say leading an accounting team, <laughs> like the different styles of people. And this guy took me for a walk and he's like, Dave, what do you want your legacy to be? And I scratched my head uh, being the slightly Asperger's <laughs> engineering kind of guy uh, working in a, in a sales organization as a sales engineer. I said, uh, I don't really care. <laughs> and, and you could tell it really pissed him off, uh, which probably wasn't the right answer. But uh, the other day I was interviewing Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, a big name. And, I know Gary. Sure. Yeah. You know, Gary's great. And He's, he always speaks his mind and, and same thing. He said, well, what do I want my legacy to be? And I'm like, Gary, why do you, why do you care? Uh, and he said, actually, I think it's just my ego. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate that because I don't care if anyone remembers my name. Like when I'm dead, I, I care pretty much if, if my family and, and close friends, uh, you know, uh, re remember me and, and think I, I did good by them. But all the work I'm doing isn't for my legacy. It's not for me. Uh, and so am I alone right. in that my legacy is just I, irrelevant? I, yeah. So the way I talk about legacy <laughs> is we shouldn't wait to leave a legacy. We should begin leading one right now. And you lead one today through the impact that you have on others, the culture you were trying to build, the opportunities you're trying to create for people, the, you know, the, the disruption that you're bringing to uh, help people live longer, healthier lives. You're, you're leading that in your, your life and in your service. I would agree with you. A hundred years after I'm gone, I don't really, I'm not like Gary in the way where I, I don't give a shit what everybody thinks of me. And I, you know, I, I want what I'm doing today to matter today. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and so those two questions help frame it in that way. 
who did I impact today? How will the people I worked with remember me today? Beyond that, or 50 years after I'm gone, that's not a scoreboard I concern myself with. So, so you're looking at little, real-time legacy, basically. Like, re- re- how I, yeah, how so am I, I say, impacting people now? Yeah, so All I right. tell leaders, don't worry about leaving one, lead one right uh, now. Okay. Uh, I can resonate with that exactly, where if even if if you, you know, go somewhere and, and get a uh, lunch, you know how did you treat the the waitress and you know, were were you kind and, and things like that? I, I value that greatly, uh, and I don't care right. if she knows my name. <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like, was her day slightly better? Uh, right, that sort of a thing. All right, so well, so that's, that's how that's you're defining. Yeah, that's being intentional, right? So you, yeah. you decide how you show up. You're intentional the way you move through life and in your interactions and your relationships. And I certainly think that's a better way to be. All right, cool. Let's switch gears to innovation because you talk about that in companies. We touched on it earlier and innovation is a a core thing that I I do. And sometimes I I feel like some of the most innovative thinking I do happens when I'm not working and and it it just appears like my the outline for my book on fertility uh, and how to have a, a smarter, healthier kid. I came out of uh, many hours of, of very altered state neurofeedback work, and I just picked up a pencil and I wrote down the entire outline for the book. It, it was in there somewhere, right? But I'm not sure that it was a conscious, thoughtful process. So how would an individual person, whether they're part of an innovative company or not, be more innovative? Yeah, so um, here's a thought around this. And I'll, when I'm doing a seminar, I always ask the question, kind of the question that you were considering is, where do you do your best thinking, your most creative thinking? Where do your best insights come from? And you start to hear the answers, right? And, it, you know, when I'm doing yoga or, you know, when I'm running or in the shower, in the middle of the night, which may be anxiety and not good thinking, but whatever. And, but what it never is, what it never is, it's never in the office. It's never during work because we're overwhelmed and we're distracted and we're switch tasking and we're not concentrating and doing deep work. So what I always suggest is you've got to schedule some white space in your calendar. Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great and Built to Last, he has a formula for this. For every two weeks of work, schedule 10 hours of white space where you think about your business and you think about your problems. And virtually nobody in management and leadership at large companies is doing something like that. They're working in the business. They're grinding through their 300 emails. You know, They're at their desk or in meetings back to back to back to back for 10 hours, and then they're getting to their email at night. So they're not giving themselves that time to think to to you know to relax um so and it's different for everybody you know you had your way of doing it i'm going to jackson hole for four or five days at the end of this week to hike and spend time in nature and do a digital detox and i i know that'll put me in a state where my thinking is clearer and i'm more creative and i'll be i'll probably come back and produce a lot of work after that that's probably the hardest thing for uh, for leaders including me I mean, every minute of my day is is scheduled uh, because there's huge demands on my time, and I've got some big things I'm working on, and I'm I'm grateful to be able to do that. But yeah, there's a certain point where you can look back over the last month and say I actually didn't have an hour of unscheduled time, uh, and I know that that's not particularly healthy. Yeah. But sometimes it emerges, and it that's a function of working with the people who help you to schedule your time. And I can't I can tell people listening I haven't mastered that one yet. So if you have any good good uh, 
Good advice for me, Ryan. I'm all ears on that one. Well, Dave, the one, the, my bit of advice on that is what gets scheduled gets done. So if, if, if white space is a priority, you've got to put it in your calendar. Get the people that are managing your calendar to put it out way in advance and incorporate that into your project work. And I, I agree with you. If you. We can all sprint for a little while. But there is a point where if you keep sprinting, it will have a diminishing return on your efficiency and your productivity. And so you just, you know, you want to balance that. Um, and look, it's certainly, I think any anybody that's busy that's trying to do big stuff deals with that. My recipe for dealing it is to protect blocks of time in my calendar. Yeah, I uh, I put them in there, but then some sort of <laughs> they <reporter>. get robbed. <laughs> yeah, some reporter for some you know uh, big magazines. Oh, I have to have a, this interview to make the deadline. You're like, all right, sure, right in the middle of my white space, and then you have two small blocks, and and I find that there's a, a task switching time. You want to get into that white space mode. It takes you a little while. So putting 50 minutes of white space four times a day is different than one hour of white space, and a day of white space is is very different than two half days, and it's the fragmentation of white space uh, that I'm working to combat on my calendar. And you know, there's a there's a book Cal Newport wrote it called Deep Work, and I, yeah. I don't want to I don't want to butcher his research, but I think it takes when you get distracted, I think it takes over 20 minutes to onboard and get back to the same level of concentration around whatever your project is. So I've experimented <laughs> with things. I've had a I've had a 10 o'clock rule for periods of time where I I've told my team. Um, you know, during this period of time, no calls, no meetings, no interruptions. I won't be on email before 10 a.m. And so the 6 to 10 a.m. time frame, and I'm an early riser, that works for me, um, you know, is protected. And that gives me four hours of deep work. Nice. Other people, you know, can do that at um, – my brother can do that at night. You know, he can sit down at 9 o'clock at night and between 9 and midnight or later than midnight, he can lock in and grind. That's not my most creative time. Everybody's different in that regard, and yeah, I think you have to – kind of tap into what works well for you and where that creative energy comes from. And I'll tell you another thing too, for me, um, doing a full digital detox a couple of times a year. Um, I've done it as long as eight days. More recently, I did one for four days. I'm going to do, I'm going to do it this weekend in Jackson hole for two. That is a huge reset for me. Um, you know, I know there's been a lot that's been written and talked about with respect to technology and addiction, but that constant, you know, just competing for my attention. I, I just know, um, I enter a different place. My mind body feels differently when I shut that off for four or five days. I went through this very interesting uh, process when I first did neurofeedback, maybe, 20 something years ago, a phone rang during the session in this doctor's office. And I watched my brainwaves just go completely crazy. And he laughed and said, look at your brain. That's your fight or flight response from a phone call. And I was like, wow, every time the phone rings, I, I actually do have this sort of anxiety response. And then I realized uh, with email alerts and all that stuff. So for many years, I don't have any alerts turned on on my devices. If you text me, I get an alert. Other than that, I'll look when I want to look. And even with text messages, I've gotten to the point where I'll look at it when I want to look at it. Uh, like I see it's there, but the the inner stress response is just gone. Where I, I truly, at a at a visceral neurological level, I don't care about a text message anymore, it, which has reduced my my burden from that stuff. But I I'm going to go spend a few days in the desolation sound, where I'm pretty sure there's no cell phone coverage anyway. So we'll see if uh, an actual digital detox versus neurologically programming myself to know, you know. I might miss something important in a text message, 
But if there were no text messages, I would have missed it anyway. And it's just not, I'm not going to die no matter what happens on text messaging. And when I, I feel like when I know that viscerally, my stress level goes down. But that was years of, of internal programming to get to the point where I feel like I'm not paying the toll I used to pay. But I, I don't know that for a fact. I could just be deceiving myself. So, You know, it's interesting. All, all of my alerts are off on my phone, yeah. too. So after the detox, I made, I made that change. And I, I think it's helped a lot. But the device is still on me physically. It would be interesting to catalog how many times I actually touch it or engage with it on a daily basis, particularly when I'm traveling. Um, but I, I found that that extended period of time where it was simply inaccessible, where I could just be um, you know, so it's, it's having more time to be instead of do. And I think I'll, like a lot of busy people, we end up in doing mode and being mode gets lost a little bit. And so capturing some of that being time back was important to me. I, I think that you've got a good point there, Ryan, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are your three most important pieces of advice for me? What would you offer them? Yeah. Number. Number one, have a com- create a compelling vision for what you want. Um, perform better, success. I think it's defined differently for everybody. You get to do that to yourself, but I'd say be kind to your future self. We talked about having a compelling five-year vision. Number two, stay in the learning line. Leaders are learners. And so whether that's hiring a coach um, or accessing good information on your own, you've got to constantly be challenging yourself to grow. Stay in a growth mindset. And then three, the third thing I would say, and it's a big part of your focus, is take good care of yourself. Um, you know, for me, that means meaningful relationships, meaningful work, and mind-body wellness. And if I'm doing all of those things, um, I tend to find that I'm making progress, I feel fulfilled, and I'm moving my life in a productive direction. Uh, well, thank you. And thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Your website is ryanestis.com. And for the entrepreneurs amongst our listeners or people interested in innovation and leadership, you've got a bunch of good stuff up on your blog where you go deep on things, which is why I wanted to pick your brain on the show today. And thank you for showing up. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If you like today's show, I have two asks for you. One, let me know. I'm always trying to figure out how much do you want to hear about leadership and innovation and the entrepreneurial side of things. Because some of the world's top performers are entrepreneurs, but a lot of them aren't. And the second thing is, if you like the show, leave a review. So hit me up on social media, hit me up on Instagram, I'm dave.asprey, and tell me, yeah, I really like this stuff, I want more of it, or you know, I want more neuroscientists because I'm listening and I love all of this stuff. I wanna be a better human being, not just in my brain, but in the way I show up in the world. And I talk to guys like Ryan to pick their brains and hopefully you're getting some value out of the interviews as well. So thanks for letting me know what matters to you and leaving a review about it. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. 
This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.